there is a uniquely American practice that is becoming the rage. I think probably over the last two to three years, there's this unique thing called a gender reveal party. And uh, it's kind of a phenomenon. It's a little bit strange. If you go to your YouTube search engine and you just type into the bar gender reveal parties, you will have more hits than you care about. Uh, You can also type in gender reveal fails, and that's actually a little bit more entertaining. But the idea behind a gender reveal party is there's a a couple and the, the, the woman is pregnant and they want to reveal to their friends and family what the gender of their child is. So usually, maybe not usually, it often involves though a balloon that is filled with either blue or uh, pink powder, how stereotypical. And um, the, the balloon is then at some point in the festivities, it, it bursts. And then if it's pink powder that comes out, they know it's a, a girl that's going to be born. And if it's blue powder, it's a boy and everyone's happy and it's exciting and it's a big deal. One of the oldest feasts, or maybe to put it in in contemporary terms, one of the oldest parties that's commemorated in church history is the Feast of Epiphany. Epiphany is celebrated on January 6th, and it marks the end of the 12 days of Christmas. So you've probably heard the 12 days of Christmas song. You probably don't want to hear it again. And uh, so, but the 12 days of Christmas is actually a real historical event. It's from Christmas Day, um, the 25th of December through January 6th, which is Epiphany. The word Epiphany means revelation. And the event, there, there are three biblical events that are remembered and celebrated at Epiphany. The first is the most well known and most common of those which is the visit of the Magi, or the journey of the Magi and the wise men to encounter Jesus still as a very young child. The next one is the baptism of Christ uh, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And the third is the miracle at Cana in Galilee when Jesus changed the water into wine. And you can see how each of those events revealed something about the nature of Jesus Christ. Epiphany is like the father's reveal party for his son Jesus. Not a gender reveal, but a truth reveal. And even though we're a couple weeks late, I'm fully aware of this, we're backtracking in the church calendar and year to consider Epiphany. We'll be doing that this week and next week. Specifically, I want us to ask, What was revealed through the account of the visit of the Magi? Of course, Jesus himself as a baby was revealed. But there there are additional levels of revelation. What does God reveal in and through this story? I know you've heard the story before, but I'm going to read it again this morning from Matthew chapter 2. And listen, you can follow along if you'd like. And let's see if God has something new for us today from this very well, well well-known account. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I two may go and, and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The first revelation that God gives in this account is the nature of his kingdom. So God reveals the nature of the kingdom of God. Because we look back on these events through the lens of history, but for the people living them, they did not, of course, have that benefit. The Jews, as a nation, were waiting and longing and hoping and praying for their Messiah. Messiah means Savior. It's another, we often use the word Christ. The word Christ carries that same idea. It's a title, Messiah, Savior. They were longing for the Savior to come because they were God's chosen people. Because of that, they understood that the Messiah was going to be a Savior for them alone, for the Jewish people. But then we have these magi, these wise men. What do we know about them? They're certainly not Jewish. Because they come, the text says, from the east, far away. Most scholars today say that the Magi likely came from the vicinity of or around Persia. So Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. We associate you know, with, with, with the Advent story, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Isn't it interesting that the region from which the Magi came is one that is still very important to peace on earth today? Every time that scripture mentions astrologers, because not only were the Magi foreign, but they were astrologers, men who studied the stars and they interpreted human events according to what they saw in the heavens. Every time in scripture that astrologers are mentioned, it's in a negative context. Astrologers are always in scripture equated with witches and diviners and magicians of the evil arts, always. So when God announces the birth of his son, the Messiah, he does it to foreigners 
who practice a religion that's prohibited under Jewish law. What's going on? Consider what this reveals about the makeup of God's kingdom. If we take into account the broad range of the Christmas story, we see men and women, poor, the shepherds, and the wealthy, the magi, the powerless and the influential, the Jews and the Gentiles, the young and the old, who are all coming to the feet of Jesus. This might not seem surprising in our contemporary context, but to the Jews of the day, this would have been horrifying and perhaps shocking because in their understanding, the Messiah was supposed to be uniquely and only for the Jews. I want to say to all of us today that the kingdom of God on earth as revealed in the church does not depend upon economic status, upon race, upon country of citizenship or occupation or ability or influence. Jesus is the great unifier. He is the only one who can reconcile such disparate people into one family, one body, one church. Now, again, since we have the benefit of history, we know that he does that through death. He does that through the cross. And he does it by putting to death our sin, purifying his people, and reconciling them with God. But it's incredible that even as a baby, Jesus is bringing these people into unity. It might seem silly to say that Jesus reconciles men and women, but it's true. At the fall of mankind that we read about in chapter 2 of Genesis, sorry, chapter 3 of Genesis, we see that a sword comes between the sexes, a sword comes between the genders, the genders that were meant together to image God and to reveal his glory on earth, they turn into enemies. But at the cross and through Jesus, women and men are reconciled and united once again. Jesus can reconcile Argentinians and Brazilians. He can and he does and he has. And this is incredible, an incredible truth about the kingdom of God because you know that humanity for all history has been a people of prejudice. We find reasons to dislike others, usually those who are different from we are, from what we are, who speak a different language, who look a different way, who are from a different location, who have a different economic standing. But the church has done away with that by God's grace, not by our efforts, but by the power and reconciliation of Jesus. From the time he was a baby, God's already revealing the nature of his kingdom. Every people, every tribe, every nation, representatives from all of them will be in God's people. And I challenge us today, I challenge you, us individually, to consider what our own prejudices may be. Even as we look around this small room, are there certain people that you think maybe they, they really shouldn't be here? They don't really deserve the redemption of Jesus Christ. They don't really deserve for their sins to be forgiven. They don't deserve to be on the same level with me. 
Maybe they can sit in the back. Maybe they could go to the overflow room. You know, that's where we banish people, right? The overflow room. They deserve to be in the overflow room. They don't deserve to be in the live sanctuary. Is, do we see that in ourselves? Just an example to use at, at, at Calvary, and this is, I think, somewhat unique perhaps. If we want to talk about, of course we can talk about race and you can look around and see there are many races represented here, again by God's grace. You can consider from an economic perspective, you know this, we have people with very, very high uh, acquisitive power. Is that how you say that in English? Poder acquisitivo? And then people at the opposite extreme who are struggling on a day-to-day basis to know if they're going to have enough to eat, to know if they're going to have enough to provide for their family. Only, I want to emphasize this, only Jesus can unify people into the body of Christ, the family of God, the church. This account reveals the nature of the kingdom of God. Secondly, God reveals the content of the human heart. In this account, we see three kinds of people represented, three individuals or groups who react to Jesus. And I think it's worth noting them and asking ourselves, where maybe do we fit in? It says each of these three representatives are confronted with the news of Christ's birth, that the state of their hearts is revealed. Jesus is the great revealer of the human heart. Maybe another way to express this would be to say that a person's reaction to Jesus reveals the content of their heart. First of all, of course, we have the Magi. They see this star wherever they're from, and their immediate response is, we've got to go check this out. You know, I have no idea how this happened. Actually, that's not true. I do have some idea. I'm going to talk about it more next week. But I think there's also a powerful a very, very strong indication here of the doctrine that we call election or that God works in people to choose him. Because how are the Magi, how in the world are they to know this? A star, ergo, Jerusalem. Therefore, the king of the Jews. Therefore, not only are we going to go greet this royalty, but we're going to worship this royalty. This is miraculous. They don't have the writings of of the prophets or the writings of Moses. Their hearts are revealed nonetheless as submissive and ardent toward God. So they go to encounter this king at a great personal sacrifice and inconvenience, even though they're determined to be with Jesus. They haven't met him yet. They don't know who he is yet, but their hearts are already humbled before him, acknowledging him as Lord, even though they haven't encountered him. The second person we meet is good old Herod, King Herod, he was a terrible person, historically speaking. A violent, unpredictable, vicious ruler. During his reign, he murdered thousands of people, and he was so paranoid that Herod murdered his own wife and children because he was convinced that they would pose a threat to his throne. And the Roman emperor during Herod's reign was quoted as saying that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's child. When the text states that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, 
Jerusalem was not disturbed by the news of this king. Jerusalem was disturbed because this despotic, unpredictable tyrant that was their king was disturbed. And they were terrified. The, the, the city was terrified of what this crazy king was going to do with this news. He was going to explode and what was going to be the consequences that they were going to have to bear. Not too long ago, uh, I introduced uh, two people. They didn't know each other. I knew them both. And I happen to know that one of these people was from the far, far, far left of the political spectrum. I knew that the other person was from the far, 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 far right of the political spectrum. So I introduced the two and we began a conversation and it only took very, very short time. Now, now, now friends, all of you know the political climate that we live in today. You know, whether you're hailing from North America or from Brazil, it, it's very similar situations, right? So I thought these were both, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Let's have a conversation. Now, I didn't introduce them because of who they were. They just happened to be there. I knew them and introduced them. Within minutes, one of them, I'm not going to say which side, one of them began to make some very strong political affirmations. I was disturbed. Now, you need to understand, I'm like, I'm like Jerusalem in this analogy where <laughs> I'm bracing myself because I can only imagine what the response of the other person is going to be. Why? Because the one who's speaking assumes. They assume, oh, we're all on the same page. Therefore, you'll love these affirmations I have. No, you won't. This person won't. And I'm like, looking like, where's the escape hatch? You know, where's the ejection seat where I can either eject myself or eject the person who's speaking, you know? Um, <laughs> But that's what's going on here in Jerusalem. It's that they're disturbed because they're terrified of the response of their king. What is it going to be? To Herod, Jesus was not God. He wasn't king or Lord. Jesus was a threat to the sovereignty of self. Jesus was a threat to Herod's power and to his kingship, or at least Herod thought he was. And it's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this in the text, but Herod is the first one who refers to Jesus, to the baby, as the Messiah. Herod is the one who asks the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, where is the Christ to be born? So at some level, Herod has some idea of what's going on, and he sees Jesus as a direct threat to his own self-determination. There is a parallel for us in this. I'm not calling any of us Herod, but Jesus is and always will be a threat to self. Self and Jesus will not share the throne of any life. And Jesus himself said that what it means to follow him is actually to deny self and take up one's cross and follow. Something that none of us are born wanting to do. Herod's reaction to the birth of Jesus was a scheme to kill Jesus while he's still a baby. You know this. You know how the story plays out. Why? Because Jesus was a threat to Herod on the throne. 
And his reaction reveals the blackness of his heart. There's a third category or group of people that we encounter, and that's the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the ones that Herod goes to asking for advice. The chief priests, the teachers of the law. Now, these are the people who had studied, and they knew it. They had probably memorized most of the texts of the prophets and of Moses, and they knew it all. And the implication is that, at least at some point, they believe. But while the Magi have traveled for many, many days, some think up to a year even, just to meet Jesus, these leaders are unwilling to travel the nine kilometers from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to meet the king prophesied in Micah 5.2. And notice, they were quick with their response. When Herod asks them, where will the Christ be born? They had it. And they knew it by memory and by heart, and they said it. But you know what? Just because they knew it had not translated into action on their part to encounter this Messiah. They believe, but they can't be bothered with the discomfort of travel. They believe, like, you know, from a, from a safe distance. At least, at least we're not like Herod, maybe they said. But their hearts are revealed to be apathetic toward Christ. Whatever belief they have, it's, it's limited to the intellectual. It's not put into practice. It doesn't become practical. And the question for us then is, do we see ourselves or can we see ourselves reflected in one of these three hearts? Threatened by the kingship of Christ and determined to keep control of my own destiny, my own life, and to maintain self on the throne? Or maybe we're comfortable with Jesus, you know, being kind of, nearby, but far enough away that he's not going to transform me, that he's not going to convict me, that he's not going to change me, because that might shake us out of our comfort and our lethargy and our apathy. Or maybe by the grace of God, by his calling, by his power, we have hearts that really long to be with and know Jesus. Hearts that translate belief into action and faithfulness. The last and third revelation that I want us to see today is that God reveals the nature of the Messiah. While the Jews believed that the Messiah would be appointed and set in power by God, they did not know that he would be God. And Jesus broke all expectations. Cosmically speaking, he superseded and he exceeded all expectations of what a king could or would be. But for the Jewish people, in their hopes and dreams, Jesus fell short of their expectations. They were hoping for an earthly king, and understandably so. I think each of us would have too in that context. An earthly king who would be a great military leader, who would expulse the Roman invaders, who would restore the nation to its former glory under King David and under King Solomon. And as we know, Jesus did none of that because his purpose was so much greater. And it's very telling that in this Magi account, from the very beginning when they arrive in Jerusalem to the point where they arrive at the house where Jesus is, their focus is worship. They come to Jerusalem and they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. When they arrive at this baby, 
they bow and worship. That is not a normal reaction to a child. I've had the opportunity, the blessed opportunity, to be in many hospitals visiting people who have given birth to new children. I have never once bowed and worshipped any of those children. As beautiful as they may be, as precious as they may be, they don't engender in us worship. So when the Magi bow and worship Jesus, the author of Matthew, Matthew himself, he's telling us that. Why? Because he's actually revealing something about this baby. If this baby was worthy of worship, it can only mean that this baby was God particularly in the Jewish context, because it was hammered into the Jewish people. You should not worship any other God but Yahweh himself. He is the only one worthy of worship. To go back to the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image in the form of anything in the earth, earth below or the, the, the skies above. Only God. So when Matthew emphasizes this, they came to worship him and then they bow and worship. God is revealing something about his son about this baby. He's saying, this baby is God. One other way that God reveals the nature of his Messiah is through the gifts of the Magi and what they represent. And while all three of the gifts were valuable substances, they also each point prophetically not only to Jesus' identity as the Son of God, but to the kind of Messiah he is. And just as a side note, I think most of you know this already, the reason that in our manger scenes today there are three kings or three magi, it's because there were three gifts. Um, we don't really know how many magi there were. I did see a funny cartoon recently. I don't remember where it was, but it, the caption, it showed this, this man kind of walking away from the stable, sort of ashamed, and it said, the fourth wise man was not admitted because he did not bring a gift. Um, maybe that's what happened. These men brought what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. An easy way to remember what these gifts say about Jesus is to use the phrases from the Christmas hymn we sometimes sing here at Calvary. It's titled, Joy Has Dawned Upon the World. And near the end of the third verse, there are these lines, Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way and by his blood he'll win us. Gold prophesies that Jesus the Messiah is king. Gold is a royal gift for a royal prince. The frankincense was a very valuable incense that the Jewish people used in the temple and before that in the tabernacle. It was incense which was burned, and as the, the smoke and the scent filled the space, of the temple or the tabernacle, it was a symbol or sign of the presence of the glory of God filling that space. So God's glory, though not visible, filled the temple, and the incense, the frankincense, was a symbol of the presence of God, indicating that God, through Messiah in Christ, was going to be Emmanuel with his people. Not far away, but with. Now, these first two gifts would have made sense as royal presence. But the last one, though again extremely valuable, is really out of place at a birthday party. 
Myrrh was a valuable spice, but its primary use in the day was to preserve dead bodies, or at least to mask the smell of decay as a body was prepared for burial. Maybe this will help put it into our contemporary context. You're in the hospital, and you uh, or your wife or your family, you're just welcoming your first child into the world. Your child was born a few hours ago, and then you hear a knock on the door there in the hospital, and someone comes in, someone that you know, and with them carrying between maybe two or three people, they bring in this hand-carved, very ornate, gold-plated coffin. And they go up to your child, the little baby lying there, and they say, you're going to need this soon. As parents, would you appreciate that gift? I mean, why not just go ahead and bring some embalming fluid, right? You know, and just lay that under the Christmas tree or, or put it with the presents there and the little uh, lembrancinhas that you, you give out. I mean, there's something prophetically profound but also painful in this gift. And this is where another instance we know that God was working in and through the Magi because this would not be a normal gift to give it a birth. What's it saying? That even though this Messiah was king and this Messiah was God, this Messiah was also one who had taken on human flesh and would suffer and die a human death, would fulfill the suffering servant prophecies of the book of Isaiah. And in his suffering and through his death, he would win the greatest victory of all time. He was king. He was God, and he was a sufferer. This God reveals through the visit of the Magi. There's one more revelation that I'm going to draw out next week. I'll give you a little preview. It's its own entire sermon. But God reveals through this epiphany account of the Magi the life of a disciple. What the life of one of his disciples is. What it looks like. But today I ask you the question... What has God revealed about himself to you today? Or what has he revealed to you about you? Does our heart, does your heart beat for Jesus like the Magi's hearts did? Or is it cold and calculating and resistant like Herod's? Or simply apathetic and disinterested like the chief priests? Have you surrendered to the Messiah who is King, God, and suffering servant? What about the makeup of God's church, of his kingdom? Do you bear prejudice or ill will toward an individual or group of people within the church because you feel like they don't belong? Maybe you're withholding forgiveness from somebody, from a brother or sister in Christ because they've deeply wounded you. You know what? That's a, that's a kind of prejudice, refusing to forgive. Maybe we look at people and say they don't have the right to become the children of God. Now, the, the remedy to each one of these situations is the same because the remedy of each one is at the foot of the cross at the feet of Jesus, which is where the Magi end up. No one else in this story ends up there. Herod doesn't end up there. Neither do the chief priests and the teachers of the law, but the Magi do. And yet, 
Healing would have been at the same place for Herod and for those other teachers and leaders. Had they chosen to humble themselves at the foot of Christ, they would have received the same life, the same hope, the same glory, and the same redemption that these men received. And so the invitation for us is to reaffirm again our humility before Christ in worship and to ask his touch. If we see that our hearts are straying in one of those other ways, to come to him again, repent, and ask for his renewing and purifying touch. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have so often revealed yourself through stories and historical accounts. I humbly ask you to give each of us, because we all need you desperately, to give each of us a realistic perspective on our own heart, but also your perspective, Lord, on your kingdom, and that you, Jesus, as the Messiah, King, divine, sufferer, would have mercy on us and renew and heal us for the sake of the glory of the Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen.